0: Welcome to Church Alive Orlando Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope this inspires you, builds your faith, and helps to show you how God is moving in your life. And now, here's lead pastor Mike Coleman. Today, I, I want to start casting vision. Casting vision. We're calling it Vision 2020. How many of you? That's obvious. I mean, 2020 is coming up. So, how many churches and pastors are going to play off of that? Vision 2020, well, I promise this might be the only time you actually hear that phrase. I'm going to spare you that. But today it defines the direction we feel like the Lord wants us to go in. For the last three weeks, I've done a lot of fasting and and, and praying and and just seeking God for you and for us, for our future, what I believe he has for us. Our, Our future as a church is tied into God's sovereign plan for the body of Christ at large. And that ties into the plan that God has for this world. There's no doubt in my mind that while we may not actually be at the very end of time or the cusp of that thing, there's no doubt in my mind, I think for the first time in history, pretty much all the signs that need to be fulfilled for Jesus to return have happened. They've transpired. I believe prophetically we're at a very significant time. October 13th is, is, is very significant for two reasons. Number one, it's a Feast of Tabernacles. People say, well, you know, isn't that a Jewish thing? Well, no, it's a God thing. The Bible refers to the seven major feasts as Feasts of the Lord. Now, what's a feast? Uh, I took a group to Israel one time during the Feast of Tabernacles and this guy, he had envisioned that all we're gonna be doing is going from place to place and eating. I said, well, a feast of the Lord is different in the context. We are taking in, but we're taking in Him. We're taking in His presence. Feasting in biblical times was very important. It signified a unity between those that were feasting and those that were setting down. And as we partake together of God, it hopefully declares a unity in our midst. But more importantly, it's talking about honor. You're going to hear something about honor here today. In fact... In this little season of of setting aside a lot of other things to focus on God for you, for us, as I thought about the end of times and where we're going, the Lord really laid it on my heart that on October 13th, on the Feast of Tabernacles here, I'm going to be doing a prophecy update. Uh, I have received and been given permission to use my own information what I mean by that, it's under copyright, and someone else is getting ready to use it in a new book that's going to be published, and with that uh, information, some pictures that have never been published, that's never been out there, and, and I've been blessed to receive some of those from Danny Mazar. Um, his father was a curator of the Dead Sea Scrolls for so many years, and Danny is a dear, dear friend of mine. He and his sister both. If you've ever been to Israel and you've seen the Jesus boat, um, Deborah, Deborah Mazar, she is the one that Brought that out of the muck of the Sea of Galilee and took it through the restoration process. And Danny is a believer, and he believes Jesus. He he believes that we're in that time. And uh, so this guy constantly, I'm just picking his brain, poor guy, I I know he loves me. I, I, I just drive him crazy. I drive him nuts. And he's got better things to do than just to talk to this American all the time, but he's, he's so congenial, he's so kind, and he does that. And so on October the 13th, we're going to be sharing a lot of that information with you. Otherwise, I try to stay away from, from prophecy other than that, this guy, just absolutely lays something very powerful and very heavy on my heart to share with you. But how many believe we are in very key and significant times? Okay. Now, here's another thing. These seven feasts, are prophetic indicators. Okay, what, if it was Old Testament stuff, what does it have to do with us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Every one of them, and this is the reason I'm so in love with the feast. It's about Jesus. Every one of them points to him. And four of those seven he has already fulfilled. And I think the fulfillment of one of those is coming up very soon in the fact that it's my opinion Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Too many indicators. Uh, The sheep were in Bethlehem. Uh, It was a time of taxation. There's so many hints and signs that that would have taken place because the Feast of Tabernacles was the time of of taxation. Why? Because it was the harvest. You know, if you ain't got nothing, you can't give it. So they learned very quickly in the Roman Empire and also the Jewish government learned very quickly, um, you tax it when they got it. And uh, so they would, they would tax the harvest. They would tax the, the monies off of the harvest that they sold. So just a lot of things. So I think we're coming up on the true birthday of Jesus and the Feast of Tabernacles. So, wouldn't it be funny if we get to heaven and we hear him say, hey, by the way, I was born on December 25th. <laughs> you know, and who knows? Who cares? That's when we celebrate it. I celebrate it. I jump into it. Not quite ready for it yet. It was at Costco yesterday. And you know what I saw? Christmas trees. Snowman, big, tall, gigantic. I mean, they were 100 feet. No, I'm I'm using fishing terms now. Okay, 8, 10 feet tall, okay? That's more like the fish I, you know. I caught a fish that big. And um, so I'm not ready for it yet, but I'm always ready to celebrate his birth. So we're excited about that day. Between now and the end of the year, you're going to be hearing us, Lord willing, take these eight points that I'm going to be sharing with you today and uh, defining them and talking about them because God has laid it on my heart that this is the direction we're to go in. This is our mandate for 2020. In a couple of weeks at our Leadership Luncheon, we're going to be imparting this to the leaders. We're going to be coming back and sharing it with you. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to have a little handout to give you as a guide to so that we can walk together towards the end of the year with these things in our mind. So, why am I sharing it so soon? Because God wants us to get it into our spirit. These are things that can't be microwaved, these are things that have got to go in your spiritual crockpot. I didn't say crackpot, I said crockpot. Things you're going to have to let the Lord season in your heart and life and find where they fit for you. Now, these are the things I shared with you, it might be different for another church. It might be different from somewhere else, but I'm absolutely convinced as I stand here these are the eight things that God is saying has got to be a part of our vision. Now, it's based upon this, and these two scriptures, we're going to take them and dissect them and look at them and take them apart and put them back together. One you often hear me use is Proverbs 29:18. It's one of those about 35, 40 scriptures in the Bible that are converse in the Hebrew language. What does that mean? That means whether you read it forward or backwards, it has the truth. Proverbs 29, 18 is one of those. And it says, where there is no vision, people perish. We can bring that slide up, Colby, the next one. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, the converse of that is where there is a vision, people live. Okay? And then the other one is also in Proverbs. I, use, I hear pastors and I hear evangelism groups and I hear people that are involved in soul winning and evangelism use this as the motivator to go out. Isn't it interesting we find this in Proverbs in the Old Testament? Someone asked me that day, why was Jesus so hard in his ministry? You brood of vipers and, and you know, lashing out with whips and all this stuff. I said, you've got to remember, all those people were under the law. when." did the new covenant kick in? Well, it had several parts. It's the covenant that started with the announcement that the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world should pay the price for you. The last book of the Bible we find out. That process continued to kick in when Jesus was born. That process continued to kick in through his ministry, but where it really gets down to where the rubber meets the road is in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's when the new covenant came into its fulfillment. Now, here's the thing about that. It gives us an example of promise, the power of God's promise. How many of you, God's ever promised you something that has not yet quite been fulfilled? Okay, okay, hang on to that promise. Remember David, he was anointed king to be king of Israel? Well, guess what? He was anointed three times. And each of those anointings took him more and more and more into the fulfillment of that, you will be king of Israel. And you know what? With each phase, he was faithful to it. With the promise of a new covenant, with each phase and step, God was faithful to that. He made us a promise. Jesus came. Jesus lived. Jesus grew up. He studied. He prepared himself. He kept himself separated and set apart. Jesus endured the price. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the tomb. And Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He fulfilled every aspect and season and part of that promise. So perhaps the promise that you're waiting on is demanding something out of you. And that is your faithfulness. We say, well, God, how come you haven't fulfilled this? Basically, sometimes what we're saying in frustration is God, how come you're not faithful to the promise? And I think perhaps we need to hear God saying, Are you faithful to the promise? Are you aligning your life with Him in such a way that that promise can come and do season? So I just challenge you and encourage you today. So, he that wins souls is wise. I said it's in Proverbs 11 30. It may mean more than what we think it means wasn't speaking to the church, wasn't speaking to those in the new covenant, it was speaking in Proverbs, he that wins souls is wise, now let me give you a quick little study there, that word wise literally means that what you know, you know, and you have confidence in what you know, it's a word in the Hebrew that describes philosophy, it's a word in the Hebrew that describes that though I may not be able to describe who God is, I know God is, And so, what is soul winning? Maybe it's more than we think it is. And I'm going to talk to you about eight steps, eight aspects, eight parts of this this vision that I believe God has given us. It's a vision of soul winning. And the first one is simply soul winning through salvation. Now, that's very obvious. Through his death, because of his life. Through his death. Now, we are saved today not just because he died. A lot of people died on crosses. Some estimates in the Dead Sea Scrolls put at least 240,000 people died on crosses, not just across the Roman Empire, but in Jerusalem. Over those hundreds of years that the Romans controlled it. So even on that day that Jesus died, it wasn't just he and two thieves. it said that at least 1,500 people died that day. We focus on the three because those are the three that are mentioned. Jesus died the most horrible but the most common form of execution that the Roman Empire meted out on people. It continued for several hundred years after the death of Jesus. So it's more the uniqueness of the death of Jesus is not found, even though it was horrible, it's not found in the way he died. If it's found in what happened in that grave. It's found in what happened in his resurrection. That's what determines our salvation. So we're gonna be talking to you a lot about salvation. Why? Because number one, we wanna see people saved at Church Alive. That's the lifeblood of our future. As I told you in an ominous message about four months ago, I said, look around. How many of us in 10 years from now will still be here? Quite a question, isn't it? It's a question that demands perspective. It demands introspection. It demands us looking and soul-searching and saying, God, I want to be here forever. How many of you believe and know we're not going to be here forever? We all have an expiration date stamped on us somewhere. Now when it comes to my time, I want to be like uh, E.W. Kenyon. I want to be like Smith Wigglesworth. I want to be like some of the patriarchs of old that went in and just laid down and went home to be with Jesus. E.W. Kenyon said death for the child of God should not be eviction of the spirit by the body. He said "Homegoing for the child of God should be just the spirit one day saying, you know, I would rather be there than here and just walking away and abandoning this old flesh and blood, knowing that God has something better. God has something better, the way it's supposed to be. You believe that? Say amen. Okay, the next thing I want to mention to you that the Lord has given to me is so winning through baptism. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's important, especially in this prophetically significant time that we live in, to be endued, enabled, and empowered. We've got to have those three things. We're going to, from a scriptural standpoint, learn in depth what those three things are. To be endued, to be enabled, to be empowered. What the work of the Holy Spirit is. Some of us, and there are folks that believe that the greatest manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit is Pentecostal worship. worship. Mm. I love it. I love to worship in that setting and that environment. But How many of you know that are spirit-filled? You've had that Pentecostal experience. You know that is not the most important thing about being spirit-filled. Okay, a few hands. Do that mean we enjoy... A Pentecostal expression of worship, any less? Absolutely not. I pray for divine outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I pray for that Sunday that the power of God hits the platform and our praise and worship team goes to about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That'd be okay? God just moves. People are saved. People are changed. Lives are touched. So winning through discipleship. Because it's not about converts, what I wrote in my notes. It's about disciples. It's not about notches on a gun. It's not about counting heads. It's about seeing people come to that place in their life that they are true followers of Jesus Christ. Disciples. Disciples. That's when you become a well. That's when your outflow seeds your in begins to keep up and keep pace of your inflow. See, that's the problem with a lot of Christians. We have a great inflow. There's no outflow. We gotta have an outflow. Soul winning through mentoring. So winning through mentoring. Accountability to one another. Becoming. What does that mean? Becoming all that you are to be in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Do you feel like you're fully walking in the destiny God has called you to? Do you feel like 100% that I am living at that place I have become all that God wants me to be. I can't say that. Mike cannot say that today. And walk in covenant with God, understanding what our covenant with him is all about. We don't hear... How many of you know we're in a new covenant? It's still a covenant. Do you think it's important we understand what a covenant is? Now, if we begin and pursue an understanding of that covenant, where do you think the best place to know what a covenant is is found? In a theological book? No. In a dictionary? No. The place that we will most accurately find and discover and learn what a covenant is, is guess what? In the Word of God itself. So, accountability. By the way, since I began my ministry, I've been in a mentoring position. And about 30 years ago, I began to mentor others. Speak to their life. But I still have those people in my life that speak to me. I still have those people in my life to whom I'm accountable. I still am on that journey in my life that I'm becoming that person that I believe God wants me to be. And the reason that continues to be growth is because who God wants me to be today is not who God was calling me to be last year or the year before that. Because my relationship with him continually changes as does yours. And covenant. I want to understand the power and the fullness of my covenant with God. How many of you believe that's important? To understand my covenant relationship with you. And to understand our covenant relationship with our families and our communities. And our responsibility to them. And what we need to do to be able to reach out to them and touch them. Through the power of God. And through his work. So we're going to be winning souls through mentoring. We're going to be winning souls through personal growth, defining and learning and understanding spiritual gifts and all they are. God planted a seed about a year ago when many of you took the spiritual gifts outline in the inventory and you begin to learn and discover your strengths that led really to the spiritual gifts. Helps us define and understand the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Either those things are available to all of us or to none of us. They're all different. They all have a different place. And I think what confuses the gifts of the Spirit in our life is when we decide we would rather be like someone else instead of Jesus. I want to preach like he does. I want to teach like they do. I want to be able. To, oh, I want to be able to sing like Wally sings and Debbie sings. And we get so enamored by what we see other people doing that we have no vision of what we're supposed to be doing. Believe me, I've met some people that want to sing, but honey, that ain't their thing. That's just not their thing. God's called them to other things. And if they would find what that other thing is and discover it and allow it to take hold and root in them and begin to build it, you know what's going to happen? They will become more passionate for that than what they think they want to be. Because it's not about fame. It's about being honored in him. It's about being favored. Quit seeking fame and seek favor. Seek the favor of God in your life. Do what you have to do to find it. That's what I'm doing. I got really serious about us, about our church, about our futures at church. Sometime back, and and I realized, God, there's something I have to do. It doesn't mean you have to do this. I knew what I had to do. I had to start fasting and praying and getting serious and seeking God. God, what in the world is going on at Church alive? God, where are we headed? Because, Lord, I'm not here to go through motions. I'm not here just to count it out. I'm not just here to see you as much as I love you. Because we can all be, every one of us could be somewhere else doing something else today. And you honor me by being here. You honor God by being here. Because we're saying as we come together, we recognize we have no idea maybe what it is. But we know there's a destiny at this church that I want to be a part of. We're going to do it through discover your spiritual gifts, learning, and develop your spiritual gifts, and implement Does that mean I have to have a ministry? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Does it mean you have to stand up here? I grew up thinking I'd never stand up here because I grew up with a speech impediment. I grew up realizing that when I opened my mouth, I made a mess of things. I grew up realizing that when I opened my mouth, people laughed at me. Well, it's best not to open my mouth. So what I did, my mom who wrote for Reader's Digest and she wrote for Guideposts and she wrote for a couple of different Christian magazines, The Evangelist, stuff like that. She said an old Underwood typewriter in front of me and she scrolled a piece of paper into it and she said, start saying with these what you can't say with this. She said, because I'm tired of hearing you whining. That's what she told me. And I realized I can put it there. My word's there. And you know what? Nobody laughs at me. And I just have a bunch of preachers taking, taking issues sometimes of what I, but that's why I love to ghostwrite because the other guy takes the heat for what I wrote. It's awesome. It's wonderful. I get paid to be incognito. And that poor guy has to take the pressure. He said, well my brother, I can't believe you wrote that. And then that guy I wrote for, I will call me. He and hey, Mike, I'm really taking pressure on this. I said, isn't it wonderful you take the pressure? I just get to put it. I just get to say it. I just get to write it. So God may have a different way of you communicating your ministry than verbally. Perhaps your ministry is going to be communicated through prayer, through singing, through intercession. One of the things I'm praying, God, raise up intercessors. God, raise up the voice of the prophet. God, raise up the teacher. God, raise up those who have a message, those who have received revelation. Raise them up, O Lord, so that we all together can hear what you've called them to say. So winning through relationships. How many of you know life is tough when you're doing it alone? I was talking to someone about that this morning. Yeah. It's tough when you're doing it alone. And part of how we're doing it, I was so excited this past Sunday evening. Pastor Tim, you did a, a wonderful job teaching, brother. Both of our, our real-life groups launched this past week. Isn't that amazing? Ben, Nancy, thank you so much for coordinating that. And, and those of you, Kathleen and, and Sonny and Richard and Tim and Becky, those of you that put these, these home fellowships into place, and I believe more are going to come out of that, thank you so much. That is part of how... We're going to build a relationship. Now, that's not going to be for everybody. In fact, we were kind of going to shut Thursday night down because, you know, there was not many people coming and said, well, we're just going kind to of drive the traffic towards our home fellowships. And some folks said, we don't want to do that. We still want to come here. So it's amazing. And we didn't do it to play games. We didn't do it intentionally. But when we threatened to shut down Thursday night and we kind of kept it going, the crowds increased. It's like, what's that all about? oh so, yeah we're going to be here Thursday night over in that little room right there for prayer for fellowship for a little study for whatever you just want to do and because we're not coming with an agenda right now I'm through being a talking head I'm through just standing up and saying this 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 and this like I'm doing right now now these next two are the two that are we're really going to spend a lot of time teaching and explaining soul winning through learning and developing a culture of honor A culture of honor, what does that mean? The Bible says, give honor unto whom honor is due. I think we have perhaps misunderstood that word. There is incredible power in that word. We're going to learn really what it means we're giving honor to God. What does that mean? Oh, God, you're great, you're wonderful, and I want to give you this Academy Award. That's not honor. Oh, God, I want to just tell you how wonderful you are. That's not honor. Oh, God, I just want to say you're greater than any other God. That's not honor. And what is it? I'm glad you asked because together we're going to learn. We're going to learn to honor God. We're going to learn to honor ourselves. You know what I've found in pastoring? is that unpleasant, grumpy, bitter, mean, gossipy people, most of them don't like themselves. So how in the world can they like you? So when someone is, uh, you know, mean or grumpy or bitter or gossipy towards me, I look at them and I think, what is it about you you don't like? God speaks of vessels of honor and dishonor. What does that mean? It's not talking about what he makes us. It's talking about what we make ourselves. Oh, there's a little hint right there. But how do we honor one another? Again, it's not through giving awards and accolades and attaboys. It's not through just recognizing how great someone else might be. It's a powerful, intentional, spiritual move on our part that releases amazing things in the spirit realm. Things that need to be released in the body of Christ. Things we desperately need a revival. We need a revival of a culture of honor in the body of Christ. Not about being nice to one another. You're some of the nicest people I've ever met, you're wonderful. It's not about esteeming one another. Honor is not esteem. Honor is not nice. Honor is not just, you know, patting one another on the back and saying, Well, bless your heart. That's a southern thing anyway. By the way, you know God's from the South. How many of you are from the South? Okay, God's from the South. Because there's one place in the Bible that tells us where God is from, is that, and God came from Tebok. In Hebrew, Timon means the south. I think God eats grits. I don't have theological proof for that, but I'll argue it. (laughs) Maybe bacon. I don't know. (laughs) Another thing that I got to share with you, and this is where it's really going to get down to where the rubber meets the road. We're going to experience salvation through breaking generational curses. Okay? Breaking the generational curse of the enemy. Caught up on Christ, Hallelujah. That is that's make it and break it for some folks. We stepped away from that because it became, it became an abusive thing. It became that everything was because of a curse. It's not. Or I stubbed my toe. Oh, you know, my grandma used to worship the devil. Oh, you know, if something happens in the media. We want to blame somebody ten generations back. Well, it must be their fault. And we so abused this thing of generational curses that it became kind of woo-woo to all of us, or a lot of us. I said, you know, I just don't want to deal with that anymore. So we don't. Everybody remember the faith movement? Well, there should always be a faith, but I'm talking about that—that that crazy faith movement. That if you're broke, you've sinned. If you're sick, you've sinned. Uh, if you ain't pretty, you've sinned. I don't know. Mm. And this is back when I had a head of hair. I heard a preacher one time say, if you're bald-headed, there's are sinning your life. Oh my God, that makes me the biggest sinner of all, I guess. You know, I, you know everything was like sin. And it became the most condemning. See, that's what happens when God gets into something. And How many of you know there's a time that cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night is going to rise and move on? And it's going to settle somewhere else. But what happens, we're back here. I remember the Brownsville arrival. Y'all remember that? Boy, did I enjoy that. But the first time a book was written, I was standing there and I started promoting this book. I went, it's over. It's over. We've put it in a test tube. We've put it in a bottle. We've put God back in a box. God refuses to get in that box anymore. Israelites had him in a box for a long time back in the Holy of Holies. He said, I'm not getting back in there. I'm not getting back in that box. And so what do we do? We become so, such experts at moves of God that we have to write a book about it. We have to say, this is what God is doing. Rather than continue to be mystified by what God is doing, and in all of what God is doing, we turn it into a formula. And when we turn anything God is doing into a formula, perhaps it's informational, perhaps it's intriguing, perhaps it's stirring, perhaps it might even touch us. But what God is saying is, you will not be able to define me by anything other than your faith, because eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart, all those things that i prepared. And so when we think we've got God all figured out in a particular move. He says, okay, that's it. That God arise and his enemies be scattered. God is moving. He does it. God does not become stale bread. Did you hear that? God will not become stale bread. God, while He wants us to know Him, he, one of the first things He wants us to understand is, To you, I will never be familiar. You will always have to have faith in me. You will always have to trust me. You will never figure me out. That keeps us in awe of what he's doing. I'm tired of predictability. I'm tired of us thinking we've got God all figured out. Yes, we plan. Yes, we do. Yes, we we make plans and we work towards goals. And that's exactly what we're doing here this morning. But in the same sense, we say, God, we can only take this so far with our words, with our hearts, soul winning through breaking generational curses. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if... If you suspect or think there's a generational curse in your life or in your family somewhere, I absolutely believe that as we address this and deal with this under the power of the Holy Spirit, God is going to bring you deliverance and set you free. And your children are going to be set free. You ever just seen things happen in your family that are so weird? And your family's lives start unraveling, your children's lives start unraveling, you wonder what in the world is going on? Maybe. Maybe it's that. It's links of those chains that make their way down through generation after generation after generation. Now, I shared with you five months ago a sermon about soul winning and what it means. That soul winning is about the win. Winning is not at the starting line. Winning is at the finish line. Any of you ever run cross country in school? I did not. I was too lazy. Played football. I loved it. I was big. All I had to do was kind of just stand there. Yeah, we won. <laughs> I didn't do much. I just kind of stood there and gave hits and took hits. But cross country is another thing. When does that cross-country runner get the ribbon? When they line up at the starting line? Oh, okay, here you go. Everybody gets a ribbon. What? We've got to run the race. No, we don't want anyone to be traumatized or feel left out. So we're going to, you look nice in your uniform, so we're going to go ahead and give you a ribbon. Oh, they, they line up. The gun sounds, do they even shoot guns anymore? Probably not. That's probably politically incorrect. But whatever they do... A soft soft whistle. Maybe they let a feather drop so no one's traumatized. And when the feather hits the ground, they all take off. When do they win? When's the win? At the end. So what's this thing about soul winning that Proverbs talks about? He that winneth souls is wise. That word wisdom, remember, let's go, we're going to end where we started. To be wise means what I know about you may not be a lot. I'm just using my wife as an example, and I do know a lot about her. And she does me, and she still loves me. That's amazing. But I know the God we both serve, and so therefore, this God that we both serve, and he tells me something, I can then approach you and intercede on your behalf and minister to you because God has made me wise to your situation. Winning souls is not about going out here on the streets and just leading people to Jesus and walking away. You know what that is? That's an abandonment of newborns. How am I going to do that? When I became your pastor, someone said, well, you've got to start going with us down here to Full Sail University, leading people to Jesus. Well, how many of you led? Oh, about 1,000 this past year. How am I going to do that? Sorry. Well, don't you care about souls? I love souls. Yes, I care about souls. So what do you do to follow up with them? Well, we tell them where some good churches are. What do you do to follow up with them? What do you do to make certain that baby's not left there in that field abandoned? Because we might as well give birth and throw them in a dumpster if that's all we're going to do. That is not winning souls. Because, brother, soul winning is you and me joining arm in arm and together making it across the line and hearing him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's soul winning. For me to be there when you're hurting, you to be there when I'm hurting, to sustain one another and hold one another up. That's what soul winning is. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to link arms, we're going to join together. We're going to pray over one another. We're going to protect one another. We're going to hold one another up. We're going to stand with one another. We're going to quit talking about one another and criticizing one another and honor one another. And we're going to see God work in very special, powerful ways. Do you think you'd like to be a part of that? I know I've machine gun, bam, 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 a whole bunch of stuff today. I intentionally did not share a lot of scriptures with you But I'm going to end with this, one. Second Timothy two one, He who runs the race does so with patience. You know what patience is? It's about attitude. My attitude towards you, your attitude towards me. There he goes. He did that again. He did, Why? You know? Oh God, when's he ever going to get it right? And we judge one another. You know what? <clears throat> I tolerate in me. The things I don't like because I'm me. But if there's anything in you I don't like, guess what? That becomes my flashpoint with you. That becomes that place in that area that I may have division with you. Patience is not about just standing there. Okay, when's he going to get it together? It's in spite of our frailties and our faults and our failures, we come along beside others, we hold one another up. We link arms. We link hearts. We link spirits. And we say together, we're going to get across this line. We're going to make it. We're going to win souls. I'm going to help win yours. You're going to help win mine. We're going to stand together in this. And Father, we thank you that where there is a vision, people live. We thank you, oh Lord, that where people see you, there's a work. We thank you, God, that today is the launch of eight things that you've said into my spirit to communicate and preach and speak and teach to this body of believers. God has reaffirmed several things, that your hand is upon them and there's a destiny, a terse life that goes beyond what any of us might be able to see because God, what I just want to see right now is you. I want to see who you are. I want to see what you are. I want to know that in this becoming all that I am, that part of that all that I am is just recognizing your glory and your power and standing in the power of those promises. Realizing sometimes you will give us a little bit of the promise. And if we're faithful to it, you will give us a little more of the promise. And if we're faithful to it, and sometimes, God, we have to walk into the promises. Sometimes we have to grow into the promises. Because, God, there's some promises you've made us that I'm, I'm just not ready to receive them yet, Lord. My cup is not big enough to hold it. My strength is not, big, it's not strong enough to sustain it. My vision is not sharp enough to see it for what it is. And my stand, God, is not strong enough to defend that promise when it comes. The Lord told me to tell you this the other day on a boat, <laughs> a ship. 6,000 of my closest friends. My God, it was nutty. He said to tell you that when the promise comes, the enemy is going to challenge it. You may have to fight for it. You may have to fight for it. Are you willing to fight for what God promised you? Are you willing to do what you have to do, fast and pray and seek him if that's what it takes to see that promise come? I'm determined whatever I have to do as your pastor, folks. I'm going to do it because we love you that much. It's not the greatness of my love. I just say, God, every day. This is my prayer every day as your pastor. One of the things I pray is, God, help me to tap into the love that you have for these people, for your people, for my people, my tribe. My group, my family, help me to tap into the love that you have for them.